Well, hello everybody and welcome to the latest podcast for April 2017. Thank you for spending a little bit of time to listen to me. Last month, I had a very successful month for shows. Can't always say that. Some some months are better than others, of course. But for some reason that I don't quite understand, March was particularly good for me this year. I seem to have more bookings than ever. And uh, I didn't try to analyse it. These things are just sometimes, I think, just either meant to be or they're not. Sometimes you get one particular date where everybody seems to want you and you can only do one booking on that day. Other times everything kind of slots into place. People want different dates. You get different opportunities. And it all sort of seamlessly seems to, to fit. And that was what it was like for me last month. Now, with the exception of one children's show, all the rest of the bookings in March were close up. And it was while because I was doing all this um, close up one show after another, and it led me to think about what it must be like for people who have never seen close up before to suddenly be confronted by a close up magician. I mean, we take it for granted as close up performers, don't we, that we're going to walk up to people, whether they're standing or sitting, and that we're going to show the magic up very, very close. As far as we're concerned, it's an exciting experience. It's going to be something they'll enjoy. And uh, we can't see any anything unusual about it. But for some spectators, and it has to be said that most spectators do respond very favourably to seeing close-up magic. But for some spectators, it's quite a disturbing sort of experience. And I'm sure you may, if you do close-up, you'll have had an experience yourself where occasionally you'll see one or two spectators who virtually don't look at you or they seem very shy in your presence or... Some of them will even get up and walk away. Oh, no, I can't be doing this magic and sort of walk away. And it's it to us, it seems a very odd reaction. But I did have an experience uh, a few years ago um, that made me realise what it must perhaps be like for people seeing close-up magic for the first time. My my wife persuaded me to go to a poetry evening at our local theatre. Not something I would normally do, but she was keen to go. So I said, OK, I'll go with you. And it was actually a very good evening. It's better than I thought it would be, if I'm honest. But what was um, unusual about it, apart from the main performance, in the bar before and after the show, and we were in the bar before the show, one of the um, poets, it was a lady, was going round from table to table of the people in the bar offering to read them a personal poem. And she had a little menu, a card, and you could choose a poem and then she would perform it for you. So she came to our table and uh, my wife said, oh, what a great idea. And she chose a poem and the woman sat down with us and, and she presented this poem for us. And I felt really uneasy about this. You know, that she was performing just for us and everybody else in the bar um, at that point wasn't being performed to. They were just having a drink and chatting. And, and it was I felt slightly embarrassed by the whole thing. And it suddenly occurred to me, wow, this is what some of my spectators must feel when I bound up as a close-up magician and I say, right, I'm going to show you some magic. It makes them perhaps feel slightly uncomfortable, especially if they weren't expecting it and they've never seen it before. They don't know what the performance is going to be like. 
And if they're in any way sort of worried about what other people in the room are thinking, then suddenly all this attention being on them because a presentation is being just for this particular group, it can be embarrassing, particularly if you haven't got, let's say, there's just the two of you, as it was in our particular case, if there's a larger group, it's not so bad, perhaps, because if you've got a group of six or eight people, safety in numbers applies. But when it's just the two of you, then it can seem very personal and, in some ways, quite embarrassing. Uh, so I've remembered that, and I try to, when I approach, especially if it's just two people on their own, try to be sensitive to the fact that they may be feeling slightly uneasy and not to make too big a song and dance of my performance for them, but keep it fairly low-key, keep it friendly, so that they relax into it. So, in, interesting thought, really, isn't it? How do your spectators feel when you approach them? Have you ever thought about that before? For about, oh, at least 20 years or so, every year I attended the Magic Circle Dealers' Day, which took place in the autumn each year in London. And uh, I haven't been for quite a while now because I don't tend to uh, go to conventions with a dealer stand anymore. But uh, for many years I did go to this and I noticed I had some publicity the other day uh, advertising for dealers to attend the latest event. And I noticed that they've given the whole thing or they're certainly trying to give the whole thing an overhaul. They have finally moved out of the hotel that they've been using, that they used in central London and going to a different venue, which is something incidentally that I've always felt was perhaps long overdue because that particular hotel was such a busy hotel and I always felt it was kind of grubby to be honest with you but it so it wasn't a particularly nice venue so hopefully the new venue that they're going to will be uh, a more pleasant one for people to go to but there were various other things that the magic circle are trying to do in order to promote the the dealers who do go a number of initiatives which I thought was quite refreshing because Obviously, this particular day is all about the dealers. There are dealers at normal conventions, but of course, there, there are shows and lectures and other things going on. So the dealers don't tend to be the total focal point. Whereas with the Magic Circle Dealers Day, although there may be the odd sort of workshop going on or something for youngsters, generally speaking, people come in order just to see the dealers and to buy from the dealers. So it's kind of nice to see that somebody has put their thinking cap on. I thought, OK, what can we do to encourage people to come to see the visit the dealers at the Magic Circle Dealers Day? Because there was a time, and it wasn't that many years ago, I guess, when almost anybody could arrange a convention and people would simply go. It was what you did at weekends if you were interested in magic. You, if you saw a convention and you thought, well, I'll go to that one. And people were travelling all over the country going to lots of conventions. But gradually, as the costs of actually attending a live convention have gone up, both travelling, overnight accommodation, food, etc., etc., and as the internet has become ever more powerful as a vehicle for us to watch and learn magic, so the need, as far as a lot of magicians are concerned, to go to a live event has been reduced. And people are getting lazy and they don't bother. And although there are some notable exceptions, the Blackpool Magic Convention is an obvious one. Uh, people still go in there in literally in their thousands to that one. And and the session convention seems to be on, flying high at the moment as well. It's on the up. 
Um, close-ups in good hands with Joshua Jay and Andy Gladwin with their event in London now. But for most conventions, especially regional conventions, times are hard. And it's very difficult to get significant numbers of people to turn up, especially to one-off events, but, but even to ones that have been going for quite some time. So one of the reasons is that the formats of so many of these conventions simply hasn't changed what feels like forever. What we were doing in the 60s and 70s in terms of format is still happening now. And for a lot of these conventions, they, they think, well, that's what we've always done, so we'll just carry on doing that, even though it's not really working anymore. So I think it's a really good thing that the Magic Circle is looking at coming up fresh with the Magic Circle Dealers Day and to try to, using social media and various other ways, to promote it. Not, instead of just assuming that, OK, we're the Magic Circle, we will put on our Dealers Day and people will turn up. No, they won't. Not in the numbers that they used to. Now they're actually trying to actively promote it, which has to be great for the dealers who go if it works. And if the people, the magicians out there in, in the magic world respond to the information that they're given. It really isn't easy organising events these days. So I take my hat off to the Magic Circle for making a spirited effort to uh, revitalise the dealers day. The internet has created an amazing platform for magic to promote itself, both for performers to advertise the, their shows and for magic sellers such as myself to advertise and peddle our magical wares. But it's not easy these days, and it's getting increasingly, I think, more difficult to keep up with the various um, regulations and safety measures that are required when you do trade or advertise on the internet. As a trader on the internet, accepting credit card payments uh, through my website, there are all sorts of very important legislation that you now have to comply with, particularly with regard to customers' credit card numbers and the security behind those. And it's not, this is not an option. You know, you, you don't just say, oh, yeah, I, I could do that or I may not bother. No, you really do have to do this because the, the fines, should you not take this seriously, are absolutely mega. And it's, so it's not something that you can take lightly. But I see that there's uh, yet another thing that we're all supposed to be aware of because um, cybercrime, of course, is on the up. It's, it's now really probably the biggest way for crooks to get their income is through the internet. And so Google is trying to encourage all people with websites to make their website more secure by making sure that it has SSL encryption installed. Now, some sites already have it, and sorry, a lot of the big companies will have that. A lot of the smaller sites, and it probably applies to most of us as magicians, won't have it. But now you could say, well, I, you know, I, do I need this level of encryption? Well, possibly not. But on the other hand, Google has decided in order to encourage everybody to get it, to make it harder for the hackers to hack into people's sites, that it's going to start penalising those websites which do not feature it and flagging up the fact that you are not a secure site when someone logs onto it. So this means that really we, we're all going to have to look at this and think, well, OK, it's going to cost me yet more money in order to have this um, set up in the first place and managed. Can I afford, though, however, to be without it? 
because the competition on the internet is so fierce that anything that you can do that is going to be to your detriment, you really shouldn't be doing it, should you? You should do everything you can to give yourself the best chance to be found and for people who find you then to have the confidence to go into your website and to trade with you. So it's uh, in the same way that Google has moved the goalposts in the past in the way that it uh, processes the information on the internet. This is another example of you, them using their power. Although I can see the logic behind this particular thing. Um, so if you haven't heard about that and you have somebody who, who, di who manages your website for you, you may wish to ask and say, do I need SSL encryption on my site? And if so, what's it going to cost me? As magicians, we inhabit a very secretive world, don't we? A lot of what we do and how we perform our magic and, and all the things that go, uh, that are surround a magical performance, to lay people, it's all a big mystery and they, they don't usually understand how it all fits together. They don't know how we get our magic, for instance. You often get asked, well, where do you get your magic from? You know, they don't realise necessarily that there are magic shops or that you can go on the internet and just buy magic these days. And there are quite a few misconceptions as well which lay people have about magic and magicians. And I think they're, they're quite amusing. I was thinking about this the other day when I was driving along in the car. There are a number of different things over the years that, uh, that have come up more than once in conversations that I've had with lay people about magic. I thought it might be fun just to, to go over one or two of these misconceptions to see whether you've had the same thing discussed as well. For instance, there's a misconception that in order to be a magician, you have to be a member of the magic circle. Interesting that, isn't it? You see, lay people think that the magic circle is a sort of almost like equity, only for magicians. You know, if you're not in equity, then then the, you're, normally, anyway, you can't get professional work on television and theatres and things like that, of course. And, and naturally, I suppose, because the Magic Circle is the, probably the only main magic club that any layperson's ever heard of, then they make the assumption that if you're not a member of the Magic Circle, well, you can't perform magic. So when they ask you, they say, oh, you're a member of the Magic Circle, because you, you, presumably you have to be, otherwise you can't do your magic, can you? Which is quite amusing, really, isn't it? When you consider that actually the Magic Circle is just a club in London. And there are clubs all over the country, but it's the one that's in London with a fantastic PR department, been around just about the longest. So that's why people have heard of it and why it has such a high profile. But naturally, I suppose, maybe it's natural, I don't know. Lay people think you have to belong to it in order to perform. Another misconception Despite the fact that David Copperfield um, was first on television a very long time ago, one of the, the very first big illusions that he did when he vanished the Learjet is still one of the main things that lay people remember when they talk about magicians doing big illusions. But have you noticed the way people have either not noticed in the first place or never really understood the fact that he vanished a Learjet, a private jet, which is a big thing. But they always say, yeah, that magician who vanished that jumbo jet. Really? A jumbo jet? No, I don't think so. That would be a heck of a trick he, if he could vanish a jumbo jet. But that's how people remember it. It's one of those magical misconceptions. Here's another one. That Tommy Cooper, people say. Now, he was a really good magician, wasn't he? Uh, that's a difficult one to talk about. I think he was a, 
uh, a great comedian. Uh, he was a bit of a genius in the way that he managed to make his magic so funny. But technically, I think most of us magicians would probably agree, he was technically not very good. He was enthusiastic. He loved magic. Uh, he had a, a, a fantastic knack of, of making a magic that would normally work go wrong so that it was funny. But he wasn't a great magician technically uh, and couldn't probably do more technical tricks at all but of course that's not how the lay people see him because i very rarely met any lay person who doesn't like if they ever saw tommy perform who didn't like him and that liking transforms itself into oh he was a good magician well of course those tricks went wrong but he was a great magician though which i always find a uh, quite amusing other misconceptions that all magicians assistants wear fishnet tights Really? That if you're a magician, you must at home have a top hat and that you produce a rabbit out of it? Still? Honestly, do, where do lay people get this, concept, this conceptualised view of us that we still use top hats and produce rabbits from them? Because the number of times that anybody now does that these days, there are hardly any. And yet it is still an iconic symbol for magic. And the press is partly to blame, I think, because whenever they, they talk about magical magicians, they put on the, bring out the, the old hackneyed things with top hats and rabbits and so on, um, because it, they're too lazy and they don't know what else to do half the time. So maybe that's where the lay people get it from. And another little uh, misconception. Oh, I know how that trick's done. That went up your sleeve. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah, OK, we magicians you may use our sleeves occasionally. But according to some people... That's how most of our tricks are done. Everything goes up your sleeve. Or if, as in one trick that I do, where I produce a giant coin, they don't say it came down your sleeve. They say, well, that's too big to have come down your sleeve. Like, that makes it uh, even more amazing because it couldn't have come down on my sleeve since everything else must be. So it's fascinating, isn't it? Misconceptions that, uh, that lay people have about magic and magicians. Can you think of any others? So, now that it's April, Mark Leverage Magic has officially become a digital hub. I've been flagging up since last October the fact that as from the 1st of April, I was only going to be supplying all of my routines and ideas uh, as downloads. So that'll be digital downloads of text files, video files, or passing on things through my eClub Pro, the online learning centre. And... Um, and it's now April and the changeover has been made. I've been preparing for this for for, for several months. And uh, although the process is, has not been entirely finished because it's it's there was an awful lot to do and things that I needed to change. But there are over 100 of my routines now available, either as video or as text or as both that you can now buy and download. And I think if you go and have a look at the website, uh, you'll notice the changes and I think you might find it quite interesting because a lot of the routines, although they've been available as downloads for ages, they've never been made particularly prominent on the website. So it may well be that you haven't noticed them before. There's some great magic there, which uh, if you go and have a look, as I say, will come up fresh to you. Unless you've been very delving deep into my site in the past, you won't have seen these things. And I'm also going to be able to some of the, the products that have that have disappeared, as it were, 
um, but which are able to be turned into downloads will gradually be coming back online again and you'll be able to get access to those as downloadable products over the coming months and years. It's just that I can't do it all at once. It's simply too much. So um, I'm really excited about this. Uh, I think it'll enable me to provide even more of my ideas um, quickly and easily so that you can get them and at very reasonable prices. So I'm hoping that you're going to, to like the changes that I've made and uh, I would really like it if you could go to my website, have a little look around uh, and see what you think. I was having a discussion a while back with a, a fellow magician who is also, like me, a full-time pro. And um, he was getting a bit irritated because there were a couple of magicians in his local area who were advertising themselves as professional magicians, when in fact they weren't, at least not in his eyes. You see, as a full-time pro, he took the word professional to mean that that is how he makes his income. That is his job. He performs in order to create an income that he lives off. Whereas the two people, other magicians, who in their publicity claim to be professional magicians, well, they had regular jobs and they were semi-pros in the sense that the, in their spare time they went out and performed for money. And in this other magician's eyes, uh, he was irritated by this because he felt that they were... Um, misleading people into thinking that, that they were offering a professional service or that at least the magic that they did was coming from someone who was a full-time professional when in fact he didn't feel that it was. But of course there is a grey area here isn't there because professional can have two meanings. Yes it, it means professional I suppose its literal sense means you earn your living with magic but it can also refer to almost like a quality standard and I think this is how the other two magicians are using the word. They're not claiming that they're full-time pros. What they're saying is the quality of what they do will reach a professional standard. So that then leads you to think, well, OK, so what defines a professional standard for magic? What is it that makes one person, oh, yes, he's very professional, and somebody else, no, he's not very professional at all? Well, I suppose it, it's a huge range of things, isn't it? setting aside the the money element of it just looking at the quality it could be that you reach a very high performance standard but that isn't really being professional because I know of at least two very successful full-time pro entertainers who are extremely good at entertaining people but actually not very good at magic they use magic as the vehicle for their entertainment but it's not their strong suit. They're just really, really funny with it. They're not good magicians. So would you say that they were professional magicians, that their, if their magical standard is not high? Possibly not. So professional doesn't just mean the standard of the magic then. It must mean something broader. So does it mean the way that you deal with an inquiry when it comes in? how you, the experience, if you like, that the inquirer gets right the way through to becoming a booker when they book you, the way that you, when you turn up, how you um, present yourself, how you um, deal with them as people, as bookers, the way you behave when you're at the venue. Obviously, yes, the standard of your show and everything else to do with it are all those things have to be to a very high standard. Then you could say, well, I'm being very professional in how I do this. 
In other words, I'm not being slapdash, I'm not being casual about it, I'm taking it seriously. And I think that's the implication of the word professional. I suppose my friend is just annoyed because he thinks, well, it's in a way not fair that he is a full-time professional magician. He, he earns his money at this and he wants people to understand that this is his living. This is not just some casual job that he does. He is a professional and that the other people don't actually need the magic money, perhaps, although he, he can't possibly know that, but maybe they don't need the money but they're still calling themselves professional, even though it's not really their job. It's just their pin money. It's their money to go on holiday with or put back into magic or whatever it might be. So do you consider that if you're not in magic full time, that it's right that you can use the word professional in its broader sense? Or should you keep away from it? Despite the fact that we all like to think that we're in control of our lives, of course, there is one thing that none of us are in control of, and that is the passage of time. We're all, we all get older, whether we want to or not. And when you're a performer and you've been performing, as I have, for a very long time, I, I was thinking the other day about how this can be a kind of the experience that you gain over a period of time can be a bit of a double-edged sword. Now, I went pro in 1981, so I've been pro a very long time. So, you know, 36 years is a, a very long time to be a professional magician and to be selling magic and so on. So on the one hand, I'm actually very proud to tell people that I've been a pro for over 35 years and that therefore I have a lot of experience about X, Y and Z and I can do this and that and the other. But then I started to think to myself, I wonder whether actually that that is not necessarily a good thing to go on about. Because the, if you have been in magic for 35 or 36 years, as I have, then you must be old then. And if you're old, are you past it and you can't do it anymore because you've been in it too long? And I started to think, oh, I wonder whether there's an optimum amount of experience that gives you the best of both worlds. So like 20 years. 20 years is a really good amount of time, isn't it? It's long enough for you to, to have got together lots of experience and to, to get really good at what you do. But it's not so long that if you started in your 20s, you're now ancient. I mean, there are people, of course, I mean, I started actually started for first performing magic, as many of us do, when I was a child. So I did my first magic trick when I was six, above first public performance when I was 10, my first paid public performance when I was 11. So I could say, you know, that I've actually been in magic, performing magic for money for 50 years. But I don't think that's a very good thing because that makes me sound absolutely like Methuselah. So I, I, I don't know where, where the good balance is really. See, in, on the one hand, it's good to, for people to know that you know what you're doing. On the other hand, too long maybe in the same game it can be the impression that you give if, give if you're not careful if you go on about it too much so um, I'm still thinking about that one whether it's uh, something that you need to go on about when you've got lots of experience or whether actually you should really keep quiet about it all I was booked recently to do a 45 minute close up magic show at a wedding down in Cornwall and um, it was a very small wedding. There were literally only 16 people attending. 
It was a, a very informal event and uh, it was just sort of close family and friends of the bride and groom. And it was a lovely occasion, actually, in a very atmospheric venue, which I've, I've worked out two or three times, which is perched. It's like a, an old fort and it's perched right on the coast um, in, uh, in, in Cornwall, near Tor Point, near Plymouth. And it's a very nice venue. Uh, and um, anyway, so I, I went up there a little while back, one evening, to, to, to do this close-up performance. And it was quite interesting to me was something that the groom said to me afterwards. He was thanking me for, for doing this show. And he said, oh, it's really great. We all really, really enjoyed it. He said, uh, I'm so glad I got you to come because I was looking for somebody who could come along and who would interact with everybody here. And you did exactly that. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Yes, he enjoyed the magic. But the thing that was key to him was he wanted a form of entertainment that the people would all feel engaged with and where the performer would interact actively with the audience. And that's something that magic often, in fact, it nearly always does do. Music can be very passive. It can be going on in the background. All of entertainment is very passive. But magic is one of the few things where we can we actively get our audiences involved and where we can interact with them. And it's a really strong suit. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I must remember that because that is a tremendous benefit that magic has over probably all other forms of entertainment. Well, that's it. Another half an hour has whizzed by. Thank you ever so much for listening to the April podcast. I will uh, be back again in May with some more for you. In the meantime, have a great month and I'll speak to you again soon. Bye for now.